This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. One of my hopes with the Mom in Mind podcast is to be able to bring as many perspectives as possible into awareness and really into our realm of understanding, specifically around perinatal mood or anxiety disorders and perinatal loss and how people from different faiths, different cultures, and different backgrounds experience these really difficult times. And today we are going to be taking a deeper dive into looking at faith-based perspective on perinatal loss with Devorah Enten. I'm grateful to learn from her today, and hopefully everyone out there can also learn something new or at least be heard and reflected in this podcast. What I love about what Devorah talks about today is that even though she is talking about Orthodox Jewish community, she mentions also that there are some things that are applicable to other close-knit religious communities. She's going to be talking a little bit about how stigma and shame play a role in perinatal loss and seeking support. Also, really some interesting perspective on how to weave these new understandings of perinatal mood anxiety disorders and perinatal loss into a culture and religion that has a very long history, and how do you bring those two things together? Our guest, Devorah Enten, LCSW, developed and directs JFCS Ma'oz in Philadelphia, a unique initiative to engage the Orthodox community on mental health issues. With specialized training in maternal mental health and perinatal death, Devorah moderates the pregnancy loss phone support calls for Kanaf IM. With specialized training in maternal mental health and perinatal death, Devorah moderates the pregnancy loss phone support calls for Kanaf IM and for Yesh Tikva Yesh on infertility. In 2017, her Bloom program to engage Orthodox Jewish community on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders won the Perinatal Mental Health Society Innovation Award. Devorah provides private sessions for supportive counseling and consultation and presents nationally about perinatal loss and compassionate bereavement. She resides in Philadelphia with her husband Isaac and their children. I hope you enjoy our discussion and are able to take away some key points or new information and understanding that's useful for you and in your community. So let's hear from Devorah. Welcome, Devorah. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited. Our conversation has been a little time in the making since we first talked about this. 
I'm really fascinated to hear your experience and your perspectives on perinatal loss in the Orthodox Jewish community. It's really fascinating to bring in all of the perspectives, I think as many perspectives as possible when we're looking at perinatal mental health and how we can really be supporting people where they are. So we're going to get into that. And as you suggested, I would think it would be great to start off with a definition of Orthodox Judaism, what that is, and as a frame for our discussion. Sure, absolutely. I think that, you know, sometimes people get confused as to is Orthodox Judaism the same thing as Hasidic Judaism? How does it differ from perhaps the more popular, more public, conservative and reformed Judaism, some of the many variations of Jewish practice that exist really across the world? And I guess for me, the way that I would most clearly define Orthodox Judaism is it's more aligned in the way that the faith practice has been for thousands of years. So for me, I define that as one of the more traditional practices of Judaism. Mm -hmm. That would mean that there's a very deep communal experience existing in the Orthodox communities across the country. We tend to cluster in large cities with some sporadic communities across North America and really across the world that are maybe a little bit smaller, but will practice similarly as in the large communities. Mm-hmm. We tend to center much of our faith practice around the synagogue and also around a Jewish day school. So there is this experience of everybody being, and something we'll bring up a little bit later in terms of some of the challenge of community living, but you definitely tend to be faith practicing with the people that are the same people that you're going to school with that are the same people that you are kind of grocery shopping with. So Mm -hmm. even though we might live in a large community, I live in Philadelphia, I've lived in smaller communities in Phoenix, Arizona, but I can speak to somebody in this community and speak almost a similar language, not just a practical language, but a similar language of faith practice as I would in another community. So that's how I would define Orthodox Judaism. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you for that. I appreciate it on a couple of different levels. One is that just, I mean, just being able to share and teach other people really kind of what your perspectives are from a religious perspective, but also just that framework of community seems really, really important. Um, And I'm interested to see how that plays out in terms of perinatal loss. Yes, I think one of the things to really consider also is that, you know, when you're talking about something that's mental health related to a small community of individuals, and even though we might seem like we have large numbers, our numbers are you know, we're a small group of people. What I think is really important about this conversation is that you can probably substitute the word Orthodox Judaism with many other small faith practices Mm -hmm. so that this kind of conversation helps to inform other communities where there is more of a need for a niche approach, an approach that is a little bit more specified and more tailored to the needs of that community. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I'm interested to hear about the work you've been doing specifically around perinatal loss and perinatal mental health. Sure. Yeah. So this started for me, I would say about, oh boy, we're probably going around seven or eight years now, mm-hmm. where I was connected to a woman named Malki Kloristenfeld, a woman who herself has gone through many, many losses and began as a volunteer, an organization called Kinefayim, to engage the Orthodox Jewish community on supportive needs post-loss. This organization is exclusively volunteer-led, and my role in that organization is running their some of their phone support calls. So on a monthly basis, we run a phone support call just on perinatal death, and we're averaging anywhere between 50 and 100 women on those calls. Wow. Yeah. And what's extraordinary is that some of the women are 
calling us from Israel, from Belgium, from England, Mm -hmm. because they feel isolated. And really, this is one of the only places that they can get this access to very anonymous, which also tends to be very important, hair and a supportive space with people who speak their figurative language. So while my primary language is English, there are colloquialisms that come up and conversations around, you know, upcoming special holidays and the uniqueness of the losses in context of those holidays. So that's how I got started. And now this organization, again, which I volunteer, has brought in to engage different kinds of loss. So for example, there's a subgroup of women who many of whom had an affiliated stillbirth with the loss of the uterus, having an emergency hysterectomy, which was just utterly devastating, especially because many of these women anticipated having very large families because of our cultural norms. We have another group now that runs for ending a wanted pregnancy because of either a fetal anomaly or because of maternal illness needed to end and terminate a pregnancy. So these are these subcategories of extraordinary loss that are finding this unique space to communicate. And from there, I have grown a private practice Mm -hmm. that has almost 100% is focused on perinatal loss. Wow. That's highly specialized and so necessary. I mean, just as you were talking through how this has developed, I mean, it just wouldn't develop if there wasn't a need for it. Yes. And while you're filling such an important role. Yeah. One of the things I will share that I think is such an incredible piece of this work for me personally is that I've had the opportunity to, I'll call it an emotional doula. Some women will call them, you know, death doulas. I don't love that name so much, but for me, I call it an emotional support doula where I have gone to assist a woman as, again, not as a therapist, I need to be very clear on my boundary there, but as Mm -hmm. a supportive volunteer to assist a woman through the delivery of a late-term stillbirth or even a midterm miscarriage so that she doesn't have to face that experience alone. And then I do some of that emotional work by phone. If I have access to her or somebody wants to connect me with that family, I'll just guide her so that she knows what's about to happen. Because I think we don't do such a great job of communicating what that physical process is going to be through that perinatal loss. And then of course, the postpartum piece of it, we definitely don't talk about at all. So I try to step in to have that conversation with somebody and be that voice of knowledge, like of just of education that Mm -hmm. they know that what's about to happen. But it's a privilege to stand at the bedside of a woman and of a couple who are facing this kind of grief and just really stand in a deep bow of respect for what they are experiencing and being able to accompany them in a compassionate and supportive space has been a privilege for me, but also deeply informs the work that I do on a clinical level. Oh yeah, absolutely. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought provoking experts and friends at Mindful Mama. We know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm interested you had I think kind of mentioned a bit before that mental health in general is please correct me if I'm wrong that mental health in general is not necessarily openly talked about so I wouldn't say that it's not talked about I mean we have this massive organization internationally called Nefesh International mm-hmm. that addresses mental health professionals it's a cohort of orthodox mental health professionals that's international now I would say that as with any small group uh, community, there's still a heavy layer of stigma. And so while there are many, many organizations that are actively addressing mental health issues, it's still a very deep challenge. And I want to kind of stick out there one of the explanations as to why, which I think will also has relevance to other faith communities. So one of the things that occurs within an Orthodox Jewish community is we raise our children Orthodox with the hope that they will continue within that structure of faith practice, which would mean we marry them young. (laughs) We get married very quickly. We date for marriage. We get married young and we tend to have babies very young as well, which is something else to bring up a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But there is a sense of we marry within the community. Mm -hmm. So when you do that, if you're public about your mental illness or you're public about your mental health challenge, there might be some sense from another family who you might have been interested in marrying off your child with. (laughs) Meaning I have a daughter, they have a son, they're lovely, but he struggles with depression. Might I take a second look before Uh I would consider that kind of a match? And I think that this is relevant. Like, would you choose a struggle for your child in Mm -hmm. the matchmaking setting? I think it's important to clarify just by the way that there is deep and full autonomy among the young ones to get married and choose their own partners, Mm -hmm. but there is parental and community involvement in that. So it's not that we don't talk about, I think we're doing a lot more talking about it. And what I have seen uh, nationally and internationally is a huge growth in awareness around these issues and a lot more conversations happening around addiction, mental illness, and really everything that we could find in our DSM. We're, and we're really, you know, because while we are different in many ways, we are similar in more ways. Right. And whatever exists outside the community is going to exist inside the community. Mm-hmm. But there's also opportunity there inside the community in terms of what resources and supports could potentially really help anybody who's struggling. Sure. So within the context, I'm curious, what is the faith-based perspective on loss specifically, and then also on any type of grief or depression or anxiety that comes after loss? Sure. It's such a layered question. So I want to start with what is the faith community's perspective on loss and bereavement in general? Mm -hmm. So there is a very deep space for that within the structure of our community, of our rituals, which Mm -hmm. is really, there's so much wisdom there. So just by example, if a person loses a child, a two-year-old, a 10-year-old, an adult, a sibling, a parent, kind of the immediate family members, a spouse, they sit Shiva. Shiva is a seven-day cycle where they don't leave the house and they literally sit on lower chairs and are visited by community to offer them support. 
And what's extraordinary to me is one of the laws of the Shiva environment is that a person who is the visitor to the Shiva house is actually not supposed to engage that individual who is sitting Shiva, the bereaved, they're to wait to be talked to. Mm. And so really the goal is just sit with that person, Mm. hold space with that person in their grief. Now jump over to perinatal bereavement. Mm -hmm. So unless a child, this is a generalization because there are some kind of unique characteristics to this, but I'm going to go a little general for the purpose of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Unless the child has lived 30 days, there is no Shiva. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that there is no ritualistic experience of grief for the family. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the challenge for a very ritualized community Uh where there are guidelines or rules or structure for really everything we do, what we eat, how we talk, you know, how we communicate. I mean, we are a ritualistic community. When there is no ritual associated with this kind of death, there's a hole here that is very complicated. Now, historically, there was historically meaning probably 40, 50 years ago, there was a deep sentiment of like, there is no law associated with it. So you need to just go move forward. Like if there was reason to sit Shiva, then the laws would have allowed you to sit Shiva or giving you structure to sit Shiva. Uh But how that has changed over the last 30 years is not that now you're allowed to sit Shiva, but there are these kinds of organizations like a time and like can and like in which there gives you a form in which to be bereaved. Mm -hmm. So there's, and to be in grief. So the fact that the communications that we're inferring and that we are having with the community is that we must be more aware of the sadness. We must give space to the sadness. We must allow parents to grieve in their own private way. And then giving families a space to which they can personally experience it in a, not a ritual, I'm cautious to use the word ritual, Mm -hmm. but in terms of finding something that's meaningful to them, that is deeply encouraged. So for example, somebody might say to me, how can I acknowledge her death of this 37 week stillbirth that I had? How can I just do nothing or pretend it never happened? And one of the things that I might suggest would say, how about every year on her death day, why don't you sponsor a day of learning in one of the synagogues? Or why don't you host a breakfast that celebrates you know, someone in the community that you do something that is not a ritual, but that is meaningful and honors who she was in your life. Hmm. Um, and the same kind of thing can be done in a more private way. So I might sure. say, you know, husband and wife go out for dinner together and celebrate the life that she had or the months that you carried her. But that helps so much that while there's no ritual, there is permission to grieve. And I think that that permission is kind of very nuanced within the Orthodox community. And there's a lot of work that's been done with the rabbis so that they more closely and more deeply understand the needs of a woman mm-hmm. and of a man in this time period. So a woman might call her rabbi for rabbinic guidance when she finds out that she's about to go in for a DNA, a DNC, or just for a delivery. And we were kind of working with the rabbis. So they, their focus is on the religious law related to those kind of medical procedures. And we're reminding the rabbis, don't forget to say to her, I'm so sorry, or I'll keep you in my prayers, or I'm sad for you. Those kind of things can be deeply supportive for a woman that she doesn't necessarily have to feel the absence of ritual that usually comes along with these kind of issues. Yeah, that's incredibly nuanced and so important. And it sounds like you and the organizations that are doing this work are really putting something into place that's been, I don't know if you'd say missing, but that's been needed 
I would say that like, as we become more aware as a society about mental health and what mental health could be and how a mental health informed society really creates a healthy society, a healthier society, then we're right along with that. As long as it doesn't conflict with religious law, it is going to be something that's going to be deeply supported by the community. Right. No, absolutely. I hear that totally. It's reflective of our general awareness being raised about all of these, about loss, about perinatal mental health and how loss affects us and the interplay and exchange between faith values and religious practices. Correct. Correct. So it's so important. Correct. And I think that when you are a practitioner working in the event that you do have the opportunity to work within an Orthodox faith practice, or in a broader sense, you have someone who walks in your door who is Muslim or who is Mormon or who is, you know, devoutly Roman Catholic, the answer is not what's your ritual, but the question is, well, how can I support either what rituals are comfortable to you or tell me what I need to know about your faith practice that will help me more deeply understand how we can use your faith to support your healing, grieving, bereavement, fill in the blank. Yeah, the perspective that you're bringing up is so useful because it is coming from a place of humility and really wanting to be supportive in the context that the person needs, not what we, you know, our assumptions are about each and every religion or what somebody's going to need or want. That's correct. I had a situation with actually a psychiatrist a number of years ago where the psychiatrist who attended one of my workshops said to me, well, talking about just as it's kind of a tangential issue, but she was dealing with a woman who had the diagnosis of bipolar and because of the matchmaking system that exists within our faith practice was asking for her to consult with the matchmaker, which is a community member, but like talk to her about my bipolar so that I, she can more understand how it will impact me in my married life. And the psychiatrist turned to me and said, That's, this is an antiquated system. I will not be a part of it. I will not mm-hmm. participate in something so you know, disempowering mm-hmm. for a woman. And I turned to her and I said, but if you are willing to work within the faith and understand that what she's asking for you is actually an empowered place for her to be, to advocate for her needs, to collaborate with a psychiatrist, to say, how can I make you know, her future brighter based on what she desires and mm-hmm. what her faith kind of or community is working with her within the system that she's working? If you can't do that, then you don't belong. <laughs> then you're, that's not culturally appropriate. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And it was so apparent. I'm like, this is a good thing you're in my lecture, but you're still not getting it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Sometimes it takes a minute. Uh, (laughs) Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's incredibly important. So coming back around a little bit, you were talking before about stigma in general, mental health stigma in general, but specifically around perinatal loss. How does the stigma and shame play out here? What have you seen? Sure. I think it kind of comes in a little bit of a roundabout way. First of all, it's definitely self-imposed shame versus anybody else shaming a woman or a couple. It comes though from, I think sometimes it comes from a place of, I didn't realize that this is so commonplace. And so why is this happening to me? Sometimes depending on the person's faith orientation, there might be a sense of religious failure in that I must have done something wrong or did I do something wrong to deserve this kind of, dare I say, punishment. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest very vehemently that that really is in opposition to our faith practice, but sometimes a more simplistic thinker might kind of connect to that piece of the faith, though there's much broader 
pieces of faith that I think are much more deeply supported. And I think also because there's no ritual attached to this, there is a sense of, do I really have the right to be grieving or is my faith telling me that I'm not supposed to be feeling these feelings and therefore there's something wrong with me. Maybe I don't feel faithful enough. Mm-hmm. And therefore I feel I'm like, my faith is not strong enough. And my faith was strong enough that I wouldn't be so sad. Mm. So that's where I think the shame and the stigma piece comes in. I think that with education and really deep education on many levels within community, you know, people who are struggling, the providers, the clinicians, the community leadership, we are tackling that issue. But I think there's also something else. You know, if you look around, remember I described to you a community kind of almost fishbowl living. So Mm -hmm. the people that you go to synagogue with are the people that you go to day school with are the people that you are having over for your, you know, your Shabbat, your Saturday lunch meals and Friday night dinners and your social experience really is this community of people around you. And depending on how big of a community you live in is how many people that kind of fishbowl will include. And if everybody around you is having children and everybody around you is having many children, Mm -hmm. what does it mean for you to, I'm going to use the word only have three or only have four. And, you know, it's very normal, the more deeply into the religious enclaves that you get, which would be, I would say, orthodoxy is, if we're looking at a spectrum of religious practice, orthodoxy is the kind of umbrella component. And within that, you might have Hasidic communities, and just general orthodoxy, and then you'd have modern orthodoxy, depending on where you fit in that spectrum, Mm -hmm. it would be a norm to have 10 to 15 children. Mm -hmm. So if you're stuck at two, there's a few things that happen. One is the, there's a level, I'm going to call it embarrassment of like not fulfilling this deeply desired potential. And that embarrassment comes from an internal place. So nobody's turning to and saying, you know, no, have another one, although your mother might, or your mother-in-law might, but in general, it's an internally placed conversation of like, this is what I've always dreamed about. I've always had stuffed pillows in my belly and pushed a baby doll stroller. And I got married at 19 and popped my first one out at 20. And then I haven't been able to bring a baby to term and it's been three years. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for that woman in terms of fulfilling her, what she identifies with as an identity, as she is her very deeply driven identity for many women in the Orthodox broad Orthodox world, they more deeply identify with motherhood than they will as a professional community, even though many of them are professionals, but motherhood tends to be a very deep core of their identity and as defined by the fact that they have children very young. It's on the rarer side that you'll see somebody waiting to conceive. If somebody does not have children initially, the assumption is that there's something wrong. And and that lends itself to challenge. Right. So I, I guess I'm also assuming then that the role of mother is highly valued. I would say yes. I think the role of motherhood is very deeply valued. I think the role of motherhood is also sometimes put up on a pedestal to the point where we don't always talk about the challenges of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And that's where the stigma or the shame piece can come in. So a woman could have, if I shift over just a little bit into the perinatal mental health in general, maternal mental health in general, if everybody around me has 10 kids and they look amazing and their children are all matching when they go to synagogue on Saturday, how do I feel if I feel like I'm falling apart? What's wrong with me? And I quote unquote, only have five. Mm -hmm. So that's where some of this shame and the stigma, almost like by proxy comes in, where we're dealing with 
a communal norm and then failing within that communal norm lends itself to the shame piece. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm just kind of imagining just kind of from a general sense, the kind of how the general myths of motherhood play out from the faith-based perspective. I mean, there's so much more nuance and obviously the myths or beliefs are going to be connected to religious practice or beliefs. Mm -hmm. I'm just really thinking now about how many layers there could be and how deep this could go. If like you were describing, I'm wondering like in that kind of fishbowl, what you were talking about, the mental health, if it's not okay, you know, or if you know you want to be careful with who you're talking to and how you're talking mm-hmm. about it, mm-hmm. um, how that might impact someone's ability to reach out for support. Exactly. And that's what I think the wisdom is of these online supports, which is not even online. It's all by phone. And I think the wisdom in that is the anonymity. Mm-hmm. The challenge is ever transitioning, though, from an anonymous phone support space into an in-person space. You know, we had a retreat a number of years, a couple of years ago. We put on a retreat for the women who had had these hysterectomies. We had 17 Orthodox women mm-hmm. that came. And it was really by invitation only, meaning we knew who these women were and invited them to come. Mm-hmm. One of the women had like her mother-in-law lived around the corner, but her mother-in-law didn't even know that she'd had a hysterectomy. And it was like this hush, hush, quiet, quiet piece. And she didn't tell her mother-in-law that she was visiting from another city in order to attend the retreat and literally stayed inside and was like, she wouldn't go out the door (laughs) because of just the fear of anybody knowing. And I think that there's such, I do think that when you're living in a fishbowl, do I really want that kind of blazoned across my forehead when I go to synagogue on Sunday does, do I want everybody to know my business? Because the reality is that a lot of people might know my business anyways. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of the things that's very beautiful in our community is that when a woman has a baby, there's immediately a meal train that's set up and she's got food delivered to her door for two full weeks. She is, you know, provided for when there's a tragedy and when somebody's hospitalized, that can go on for a lot longer, but there's still that sense of like, I feel bad. You know, some of you, oh, yeah, I feel so bad taking from other people. I don't need that. You know, there's still the sense of like, I should be back on my feet more quickly. Mm-hmm. And I do see that in the perinatal loss world is like, if I don't have anything tangible to be doing in these few days and few weeks post loss, there's no meal train set up for a woman who loses a baby. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's this pressure. I know this isn't just in the faith community, but there's this deep pressure to like jump back into reality. Right. If I have nothing to show for it, then I better be getting right back into my job, into my role as a mother and of the other children that I might have. But I see that there's opportunity in the community to be supportive, but only if you let them in. Right. I'm curious, do you see that kind of feel the need to be jumping back into things from like the like US influence, American lifestyle influence? I don't know 100% about that. But what I would say, one of the nuances perhaps that is faith-based here is that it's not customary for people to tell anybody that they're pregnant until they're in their second trimester or until Mm -hmm. they begin to show. Mm -hmm. So if you've had an early trimester loss, 8, 10, 11 weeks, nobody or maybe your immediate family only knows that you're pregnant, you don't really go around telling people I just had a miscarriage in order to get their sympathy or their meal train or their help. Mm -hmm. So it's just something that's very isolating. If I can't explain to anybody why I'm not feeling well, then I better act as if everything's fine, which to that would look like jumping back into things very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So in terms of loss, how is this affecting, I guess, the rest of the family? 
So it's so important because what I find is that, you know, there's, it's how it impacts the individual and her spouse, Mm -hmm. um, but then also the impact of the grandparenting. So just as an example, I think one of the things that really needs to be addressed is how, and what a lot of what we do is educate on how men and women grieve differently, like no differently than Mm -hmm. we would in the broader community. Right. I think some of the nuances that, that exists within an Orthodox family is that the men have much more ritualistic experiences on a daily basis. So for example, a typical Orthodox man is going to be going to services in the morning and he'll go to services again in the evening. And his work in between that, we're spending days in study depending on which part of the community they are a part of. So a man can very easily return to structure. Mm. And especially one that is immersed in his faith. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have questions. And I think one of the things, just as an aside, is how deep struggle it is when people do begin to have faith questions like, how could this have happened to me? You know, does God hate me? What did I do to deserve this? I'm really angry at God. All of which are acceptable conversations to be having, but are very shame-filled questions. Again, internally driven shame, but there are questions that are very incongruous to the person's faith practice. So I think one of the things that we do need to do a better job of is addressing the needs of men. We actually have a support group, by the way, also by phone for men. It's very hard to get them to engage and to have the conversation. They show up, they listen, but they don't talk. Um, It's kind of typical, but they're there. So clearly their needs are there, but teaching them how to support their wives. Remember that one of the nuances of working within an Orthodox couple is that when a woman is bleeding, there's no physical touch. So Mm -hmm. to clarify that they're living in the same home, they're living in the same room, but they're not sleeping in the same bed. So there is this physical disconnect. So he can't come in and like give her a hug post miscarriage when that could be one of the most difficult times where she so desperately needs physical affection. Mm -hmm. And so there's challenges that come along with that. So he would like to be able to support her and hold her and hug her and he can't. And she wants wants to be supported in that way. And so sometimes we have to do some more education among the men who are willing to listen of how to be verbally supportive, how to really be attentive to your wife in a place where she cannot be touched and she cannot touch you. So just that's kind of a layer of challenge. And then the other piece that I think is important to acknowledge is that especially in the, I'm going to call it the more Hasidic community, there's kind of a waiting that happens when you get married very young. Many in the Hasidic community are getting married at 18, 17, 18. There's kind of a waiting that's happening for that first grandchild to come. And there's a feeling of failure of also, do I have to tell my mother-in-law that she knew that we were pregnant and now I have to kind of fail her as this brand new 18-year-old daughter-in-law? I think there's deep challenge in that. And then on a kind of a broader level, I want to acknowledge also that if we are dealing with a young couple in loss, think about that they got married at 18, 19, 20 years old. They probably dated for a very short period of time in the traditional Orthodox way. They had a very quick engagement and they get married. And within that first year, she experiences a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Like think about what is it like to come together as a couple? And it's a little bit more challenging in that the skills that might be needed to communicate maybe haven't been as well developed because they're just young. What I've seen is a lot of the parents really swoop in Mm -hmm. on both sides to be that supportive person for each of their children. Mm -hmm. So there's a deep grandparent and mother-in-law, mother involvement in order to properly support the couple as they're going through something so painful and traumatic. But again, an interesting layer that comes along with marrying young. Maybe this being the first time, you know, if you're the oldest in your family, you probably still have grandparents. You know, if your mother got married at 20 and your grandparents got married at 20, you may have great grandparents that are still living. Mm -hmm. So 
you're young, but there's many layers of loss that kind of come along with that. Mm -hmm. Feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Right. So getting support specifically to the spouse, to the husband, it sounds like that that's changing. I mean, in terms of that there's more even available to them. Yeah, there definitely is more available. I would say for sure there's more available to women. And I, that's probably, I mean, I know that that's a national trend. That's not just in the Orthodox community. Right. You know, it's something that just as in the broader community, we need to better address the needs of men. Right. We also need to do it in, in the Orthodox community. But I will tell you that it's a piece of this, though, is that it really has to be taught from somebody who, again, speaks a common language. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to put somebody in front of them who is an Orthodox male who -hmm. can guide them through this practice. And again, it's just somebody who speaks the figurative language of Orthodox practice. Right. So you're seeing the trend that we're seeing just in general, people being coming more informed and understanding a little bit more about, you know, perinatal mental health in general, perinatal loss, that things are changing, or how are things changing in a traditional environment? Oh, I think for sure things are changing. It's not that the practice is changing. And I think that's very important for us to respect. Mm-hmm. The goal is not to change the practice. If we didn't sit Shiva before, the goal is not to convince the rabbis that it's now time to be sitting Shiva. The goal is to more deeply understand the impact of a perinatal grief and in a woman, on her husband, on their children, on the family, and on the community. And that for sure is changing. The fact that you and I are having these conversations, the fact that I did a presentation for 15 rabbis in Toronto on this issue, it's changing. And the fact that there's even that the term perinatal loss is becoming more commonplace and we are more alert to these issues. 
is critical for us to say we're not like kind of looking away. We're not shaming these issues. We are paying more attention. I should mention there's, there is one other organization as well called Nahama Comfort who does similar supportive work. Just there is a place now to call where there are people who can speak this language, who can talk you through it, who can just say that you're not alone and you're not crazy for feeling this level of grief. Right. Oh, that's so important. Just that. <laughs> if yeah. we could just help everybody know that, that would just be like world changing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That idea of just saying that, you know, we don't have to fix anything. We have to create a space where there's permission to grieve because I believe that the human spirit, the, the capacity of the human and emotional capacity is one to heal itself. Like if we just back up, but stand by their side, they're going to be okay. In general, they're going to navigate their pathway towards being okay. Mm -hmm. Whatever okay feels like and whatever okay looks like for them. Mm -hmm. But I don't have to treat a person. I don't have to make it, you know, kind of find wisdoms in order to help them, especially as a religious therapist, you know, as an Orthodox therapist. I don't need to come up with all the answers. I have to allow them to have the questions and to tell them it's okay to be questioning because I might not have the answers for you, but there may not be an answer that we can understand right now. And that's also okay. Right, right, right. That's incredibly powerful. So, you know, one of the things that we haven't fully focused on, although I mentioned before about like the loss of a uterus, an emergency hysterectomy or a hysterectomy that was necessary because of maybe endometriosis or other medical condition, cancer, et cetera. One of the things that we definitely are not talking enough about is the disenfranchised grief, the grief in a more specific way of those that have had to end a wanted pregnancy. And, you know, it's interesting because I grew up always thinking like, oh, Jews aren't supportive of abortion. <laughs> and then I learned that actually it's not and putting aside anything political. We are just looking at the medical issues that women face across their lifespan. And sometimes because of the need to save a woman's life or because there are those that will also terminate a full fetal anomaly pregnancy where the baby is considered incompatible with life, they will also terminate the pregnancy. Everybody makes those decisions in very, very deep consultation with rabbinic authority. And there are rabbis that are very specialized in this area. I was working, I'm in Philly, so consulting on a case in CHOP um, Children's Hospital where we were Skyping in a rabbi with the ethics committee, with the lawyers, with the top geneticists in the, in the field to discuss the needs of this one couple and this baby that had this severe fetal anomaly. Mm -hmm. So there are rabbis that are very, very medically skilled in these areas and are consulted to discuss you know, what's required, what are our options, and obviously assessing not only the physical needs of the woman, the emotional needs of the mother as well. And I think that for that kind of scenario, there are answers, right? There are questions, there are answers, there's rabbinic guidance. It's what happens afterwards where I find there to be this very deep hole. So women in our community, and I would say that it doesn't necessarily just mean in our community, but I would say even more so in our community, are not going to tell most people they know, or if any person they know, that they've chosen to terminate a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I hate even to use the word choice or chosen, because for many of these women, there was no choice. They would die if they did not terminate mm -hmm. this pregnancy. Right. And yet, that is something that is so 
kind of what feels like antithetical to the life that we lead in terms of, you know, life being a primal force that we identify with. So just by example, we have laws about keeping our Sabbath, about Shabbat. So one of the things is that, you know, we would never pick up the phone. We don't go drive anywhere. We're really reclusive into the community on the Sabbath. And it's a beautiful turn off time. But if a person is sick, a kid falls and cracks open their leg or tears their finger, you call 911 and you go right to the hospital. There's not even a question Mm -hmm. because the safety and medical needs of the person are above the Sabbath always. So that kind of an environment, which puts life on such a pedestal, and then you have the circumstance, which unfortunately causes what to us would be the death of a fetus embryo baby, is a very, very frightening and lonely and very isolating place to be. Yeah, And I think that that also speaks to why these kind of organizations that are there to hold her and hold him in these experiences, it doesn't mean that it isn't going to be one of these rock her world situations that she will face. And I would always recommend somebody who has to end a wanted pregnancy to get very you know direct clinical care. You, I always would you know, suggest a therapist for that person for support. But when we have these community-based opportunities, what that says is, yes, it feels very antithetical to our faith practice. Yes, it feels like you can't tell me that this is actually being done in our community, but actually it is. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're not alone. And it's okay for you to talk about it among people who can hear you and support you and feel your pain and know that you're not by yourself in this. It's difficult to do that in maybe like another kind of support that doesn't have that faith component to it because it will feel like you can't understand what I'm going through. But Mm -hmm. when you put it into a group of women who practice the faith the way you do or similarly to you do, that's where the real life support happens. Right. Because you're with people who really, really get it. Exactly. um, Who can understand all the, I keep saying nuance, but I mean, that's what it is. Yep. Yep. It's nuances. (laughs) It is nuances. And I would suggest that the women that I've interacted with, those that have ended a wanted pregnancy across the board have told almost no one. And to those that have known that they were pregnant, they'll say that they just miscarried. Mm. Uh, And I respect it. I get it. I really deeply get it. But for them to walk into my room and say, a woman looked at me and she says, I killed my baby. And I look at her and said, and what does that feel like for you? That must be so painful. Or I hear you. She doesn't have to pretend that it feels like something different to her. just honoring how she feels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all so, so powerful. I really, really appreciate you sharing all of this information and perspective and depth of your faith and the people that you are supporting through these really difficult and challenging times. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with in terms of hopeful messages or things that you would like for people to know? Sure. I mean, one of the things I think that's important to recognize, again, if you take out the word orthodox and substitute it with any faith community that you choose to attend to, put in Asian, put in Muslim, put in, you know, South Asian, put in Indian, put in Mormon, put in anything. I would like to believe that room here for growth as a community and as a clinician. Mm -hmm. And what can we do as a community to hold these women and couples and families that are in tremendous pain. But when we shoulder the burden with them, when we hold space with them, when we grieve with them, I have been known to cry with them, then they just don't feel like they're the only one 
that is hurting. Yeah. And I, I believe that when I acknowledge, you know, I will remember the date of that death and I'm grateful for my iPhone calendar that reminds me <laughs> yearly that this has happened. And I text her and I, you know, say, I remember with you, you may be the only person who remembers with her, but when you acknowledge that it's the world to that couple. Right. I also would like to say that as a faith filled clinician, I don't exclusively work at all with the Orthodox community. Actually, most of my practice is not Orthodox on a clinical level. Mm -hmm. But I believe that what I can bring to the room is a deep respect for the faith of others. And I think that that's really where the future is. It says, I have my faith, you have yours. The faith can be left at the door or could be brought into the couch, Mm -hmm. your choice. But ultimately, I would like to believe that my faith is one that helps to inform my practice. It supports my place of practice. It supports my interactions with people. And isn't that really the wisdom of religious practice or spiritual practice anyways? How does it make you better, stronger, more supportive, more compassionate person. And I would like to believe that a deeply faithful person can connect with any person who's in pain in a way that says, I will hold this with you. I will sit beside you until you're ready for me to get up or for you to walk out that door. But if we did that on a community level, wouldn't we all just be in a better community? Pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Across the board. I mean, that's, yeah, that's compassion at its finest. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Thank you for this deep and rich discussion. I've learned so much and I'm hoping that the people who are listening either feel the support or are learning along with me. And I'm so grateful for your expertise and your willingness to share here. It has been my pleasure and to just put it out there that I'm always willing to discuss if somebody out there who needs additional support, consultation, you know, anything, just reach out to me with pleasure. You can get my information through CAT or through wherever. But, you know, if you're working with a family and it confuses you or you have questions, like there's no shame in asking the questions either because we'll be better off because of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Devorah, for sharing all of this information with us. I really do hope and believe that once we get an understanding of how people grieve, how people receive support, that we'll be better able to provide that support. And or if we can't provide it, that we're better able to find resources, either for ourselves or for the people that we're helping. And I learned so much today in this conversation. I hope you all did too. If you guys would like to get connected to Devora, you can find her at devorahenton.com. And as usual, if this is your first time with us, please do subscribe to this podcast so you can get all of these episodes downloaded to you weekly so that you can listen to wherever you are and whenever you want. Come join us on Facebook or Mom and Mind Connection Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.